Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today's guest is director Patrick Ray. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about your new film briefly, They Wait in the Dark, and then we're also going to do a deep dive into five films that have had an impact on everything in your adult life. It's my new sub, sub-genre format of my podcast. You're my third guest to try it, so... It's a pretty loose format right now, so you can go where you want with it. But so far, it's really been about, um, and this is for the listener as much as for yourself, it's really been about where people saw films, how they access films, you know, and what, who they watched it with. And, you know, what in terms of impact, it's not just about you as a filmmaker, but obviously, you know, what friends you made, things like, you know, all that kind of stuff that Film, film, film is like a living biography of our lives for those of us that watch Absolutely. a lot of them. Absolutely, and we can almost like chart our lives based on cinematic releases. I mean, just for the be- listeners' benefit, off off show record, we were just discussing the nineties, and we managed to sort of almost like draw a map of it through, yeah, like exactly. a, almost like a timeline, didn't we? Of like how it shifted. <laughs> well, every every movie I've seen, you know, I have a memory attached to it, whether where I was, you know, and and you know the people that were with me. Perfect, perfect. Well, that's what we're that's that's exactly what we want to discuss with your five. But we'll get on to that. But first, they wait in the dark. You're the director of that. Do you want to do you want to give uh, the listener a brief synopsis to what that film's about? Sure. It is definitely a domestic thriller that is mixed with a supernatural thriller. So it's a little bit of both. Um, it's about a mom and her adopted son, and they're kind of on the run when the movie starts off. And we find out that she is basically hiding from her ex-girlfriend. And so she finds herself staying in her old uh, childhood home on on a farm in Kansas, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And her and her son are staying there. And then along the way, they start discovering that there's something supernatural happening inside the house. So it's one of those movies where she's basically pinned between running from uh, her ex-girlfriend and also facing a supernatural threat in the house. And so, I mean, writing the movie, I was trying to come up with a fresh spin on a ghost story because I feel like everything's been done up to this point. And it's one of those things where I was trying to find a way to rationalize why the lead character would stay in the house if there's a haunting. So I was like, okay, I've given her no way out. So basically she's stuck in this house if she and she's hiding from um, a domestic threat. So, you know, it was one of those things where I kind of sat down and tried to come up with something, a horror, a, a supernatural thriller with kind of a fresh vantage point. And um, I think, it, you know, we had a lot of fun. No, no, no. It. I mean, I, I've obviously, I'm privy to have, I'm privy to have been able to watch it. And and, yeah. and in my own conclusion, I mean, you, you, you describe it how obviously you tend to make it, but I'm not far off in terms of my own sort of conclusion, which is 
I said that it's enough to conclude that they wait in the dark, starts off like a social realist drama, takes you down a supernatural blind alley or two while giving off noir thriller vibes, once the true nature of the two women and adopted child is is revealed. Right. And I, I kind of like explain to people that the movie is really about ending the cycle of abuse. Mm. And so that's kind of the vantage point that we decided to take. And we shot the movie <laughs> uh, in 12 days, which is which is kind of insane. And we did the whole thing in, in outside of uh, Topeka. We found this perfect farmhouse. So if you see the film, that location really looked like that. I mean, we basically made it look better than it actually was. I mean, I, we got there. It had been basically abandoned since 2005 by the owner. And um, she kind of reached out to me. She's like, I'm trying to sell this property. Do you have a horror movie that you can write around this location? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> I so, so we were lucky in that regard. I was able to find that place. And it was one of those things where we got there and I'm like, uh, this is so good that we are going to have to actually clean it up a little bit because we still have to have a crew here and make it safe. So, um, you know, it was great. And, it, you know, and the actors did a wonderful job. Um, I purposely wrote this script for Sarah McGuire, who plays the lead. Um, I had worked with her on several short films and had such a great experience working with her. So I wrote this script for her and, um, you know, and then I cast the rest of the, the, the cast out of, out of Kansas city. Um, I think Lori, Lori Winkle, who plays Judith actually lives in Atlanta. Actually, she lives in Paris now, but at the time she lived in Atlanta and, uh, but she's originally from Kansas city. So I was able to cast her. And she, I mean, this is, this is, this will be no spoiler without the context, but you'll know what I mean. He, the Judith gets the best character introduction in your film with her guess, uh, with her taxing for catcalling that uh, she achieves. Yes. I thought that was a, a really powerful moment. And, and that was probably the, one of the most fun scenes to shoot because we were filming at a gas station in Leavenworth, Kansas, which is where the famous Leavenworth prison is. And it was just funny because it was like the gas station was still open. I, I couldn't financially close the gas station to film, to film these scenes. So people were actually pulling up to the pumps to watch us filming these scenes. And we were doing that, oh, that that particular scene over and over again. And people were filming it with their iPhones and stuff. Um, so it was a really fun night to film that. Um, and, you know, it was one of the things we were lucky because, you know, we shot this in June of, of uh, 2021. And you never know what the weather is going to do in Kansas. It's tornado season. So we were fortunate enough to actually film this movie where there was relatively no storms. I think the, the one of the scenes towards the end, uh, we had a lightning storm, and so we were trying to be careful with our equipment and stuff. But uh, but yeah, overall, it was it was a blast. It was a good time, and and I, people because the movie's intense, people are always assuming that the shooting of the film was intense, and it wasn't. Like we yell cut, and everybody would be, you know be laughing and having a good time. But when the you know when the when the time came to get the job done, everybody got you know got serious. I'll put links in the show notes to where people okay. can see uh, They Wait in the Dark or where it's available to watch. Um, and that'll change as and when news changes about the film. Uh, and we'll move on to the main part of the show now, which is the five films that have had an impact on everything in my adult life, according to Patrick Ray. And in that, in that I have five films he's pre-selected for me that have had that impact on him. The rules of the show are quite straightforward. Um, we spend five minutes discussing each one and what impact they had. This is not film studies, kids. This is this is about who we saw it with, how we got it, you know, how it came into our 
how it came into our how it came to our attention and and friends we made and all that kind of thing. Um, it's what you know the bit that's the fun bit of film fandom, not the uh, <clears throat> not trying to win me. And we can talk about subtext and things, but anyway, every time five minutes are up, we will hear. Is that coming through okay in your end there, Patrick? Yep, I can hear it. Wednesday. Good man, good man. Um, well, look, let's start the five-minute clock counting. First up, 1977, Star Wars. Okay, well, first of all, like it was hard for me to pick one Star Wars movie, so I just decided to pick Star Wars as like an overarching of all of them. Um, obviously, I think probably Empire is my favorite of the, of the series, but... This is probably the movie that got me into movies. I was a little kid. Um, and obviously, I had all the toys, which was um, kind of funny because I actually inherited a lot of the toys from a friend. And they didn't have all the weapons. So then my my parents wrote Kenner a letter, which was the toy company. And then Kenner sent me like a box with every accessory. No way. So there's like a picture of me as like a three-year-old holding like a thank you Kenner sign with all these uh, weapons and all the toys and stuff. But, um, you know, it's funny because I think the first time I saw the movie was on video discs, not VHS, but video discs, which were these square. They look like big floppy discs because I actually have them still um, at my house. I, I I've never seen a video. Disc. Not, not a laser disc, a video disc. Not a laser disc. It's a video disc. It's square. And like you would play half the movie and then it would stop and then you would flip the disc over, put it back in. And it, the movie would start where it left off. It wow. was very strange. And it was a short term. It was like one of those intermediate uh, formats between VHS and beta and all that. So um, I would watch the movie over and over and over again. I remember specifically, I think it was 1984, Star Wars was going to have its first TV debut. And they were making a huge deal about it mm. on television. And I was like, I want to watch this. And like Mark Hamill was introducing it and all that stuff. And my mom says, I'm giving you a choice. You can either watch. I said, I want to watch it now. And I also want to watch it tonight. And my mom's like, well, you have a choice. You can either watch it now on video disc or you can watch it tonight. Well, I got greedy and I thought, well, maybe she'll change her mind. And so I watched it on video disc. And then I remember specifically, then the premiere started. I got all the way through Mark Hamill's introduction. And then my mom goes, time for bed. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. And I threw a fit. I was probably maybe almost five years old. I remember specifically she put me to bed and Star Wars aired on TV and I didn't get to see it, even though I just watched it that day. But um, it's one of those things where that movie, I quote the movies, all the movies, every day at least once or twice. And my wife my wife just kind of rolls her eyes because I think she knows right away what movie I'm quoting. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's just one of those things where like I waited in line, especially... Unfortunately, with The Phantom Menace, I was so excited. I think I was the first in line for that movie. Um, and uh, it was like a midnight show in 1999. And of course, everybody walked out confused and disappointed. <laughs> I just remember specifically like the news, the local newspaper, they interviewed me because I was the first one in line. And they're like, OK, we're, we're going to ask you what you thought of the movie after you get out of the movie. And I'm like, OK. So it was like 2.30 in the morning and they're like, what did you think of the movie? And I'm like, I don't <laughs> know what to say. I, I was I, At the time, I was really tired and kind of disappointed in the movie. And I think I've kind of grown to enjoy that movie, even though without all the hype leading up to it. But I think it's just those, those movies, specifically Empire Strikes Back, has always been my favorite of all of them. Um, and I'll be like, while I'm working on my computer, I will be listening to the scores 
my wife and I just went and saw Return of the Jedi, which was performed, and the music was performed by the Kansas City Symphony. This was in February, so it was that was a lot of fun, kind of seeing it with an orchestra playing the score along with the movie and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, again, like I kind of I watch all the shows on Disney Plus, you know, and I kind of I never miss any of it. Um, never been able to get into the, all the animated shows just because there's so many of them. But um, what what is it? What is it then about Star Wars that keeps you going? You know, given given it's I mean, it's clearly disappointed. I, I, it's You're really, not alone. It's, one of, it's probably one of the few things I like. A lot of people will be like, they're really into Lord of the Rings, or they're really into like I don't know a sports team. I'm just really into Star Wars, so I never miss. No, no that's what I'm saying. Be- to me, it feels like a sports team following, and yeah, it's a film series. And and even yeah, when the right. you know, even when your team Star Wars. Let's yeah. you down like Phantom Menace. You're not alone in that kind of uh, mm-hmm. out of interest. Then, if Phantom Menace was was a kind of a bit of a damp script because of the hype, yeah. Where do you sit on the Last Jedi? Uh, I like the Last Jedi a lot. I had a problem with the one that just came. The Rise of Skywalker was the one that I had more issues with. I felt like the Last Jedi at least tried to do some new things and tried to like put some new spin on it. And then Rise of Skywalker was like felt like it was all of the complaints that came about the last Jedi. So they just basically tried to fix everything and then they didn't make a good movie. They were like, basically went back and retroactively went and changed everything. There's the, there's the bark. (laughs) There's the dog indeed. Right. I can very much a change in tone. Now we're going to jump, we're going to jump three years to 1980 Friday the 13th. Tell me why that's on your list. I mean, it's funny because I mean, I was probably in diapers when this movie came out. Um, You know, for me, Friday the 13th, it was like one of those movies on the, you know, the playground every kid would talk about in whispers. You know, they're like, ooh, Friday the 13th. And it's funny because looking at it now, it's so tame compared to what a lot of horror movies are today. Mm. But, uh, you know, for me at the time, I, I was interested in it just because I was told not to watch it. Does that make sense? Like, I basically Absolutely. was said, they, my, my parents were like, I don't want you watching that movie because we've heard it's, you know, graphic and violent. And so immediately I'm like, well, now I have to see it because my parents are telling me not to. And in many ways, it was kind of a combination of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street because they were both kind of out around the same time. Um, so I didn't see Friday the 13th until it was like on USA. You know, the USA mm-hmm. network was a big deal here in in the states and and they would air obviously they would air the movie in in like horribly edited form so it'd be like getting ready for the axe the axe would come down and then it would cut to you didn't see it so it wasn't until i rented the movie on vhs that i got to see it with all the gore and stuff but um yeah i don't know like i just those movies in particular i i find them to be borderline comfort food um we have a channel here i, I don't know if you guys have pluto tv it's a it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah 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 yeah, they've been airing Friday the 13th, one through three, like nonstop. And so I'll put them on in the background. And my wife's like, why do you just keep putting these on? <laughs> and she's like, every time I come home, they're just on. I'm like, it's like comfort food. I don't know. Like, I mean, they just kind of play in the background and I am I feel calm. And, and that's kind of a weird thing to say. But um, yeah, I've just always liked those films. And in like 2003, they had there was a contest where you could make a little fan film. Okay. And they were going to screen the movie, your fan film in LA in front of the original movie. And Sean Cunningham was going to be there. And I won. So I ended up going to LA and I was like the first time I've ever been to LA. And they screened my little short that I shot in Kansas in front of the original Friday the 13th movie. And like 
Johnny Cunningham was there, Adrian King. And um, they ended up including it on the His Name Was Jason special edition DVD where they had like a bunch of extras and stuff like that. They ended up including my little my oh, little short that I made. I made it when I was like 22 and I just shot it with my roommates. And it won because it was it was kind of clever. It was called Rupert Takes Manhattan. And it was supposed to be like this, uh, his less successful brother <laughs> who ends up trying to attack Manhattan, Kansas instead of Manhattan, New York. And so it was... <laughs> It was kind of fun. He wears a catcher's mask instead of a hockey mask and stuff, but it was, it was fun. And it was really kind of like, again, my first time in LA, I'm showing this little short film in front of the original movie. So it was really exciting. Um, and I remember that that festival, Wes Craven was there. Guillermo del Toro was there. And this was like, yeah, this was in the early 2000s. So, so yeah, Friday the 13th was kind of like, it was kind of like my gateway horror movie in some ways, because uh, you know, everybody talked about it. And so I, I just got kind of obsessed with it. It was my first real, um, nightmare movie. I mean, I yeah. saw it when I was 10, which obviously is yeah. far too young, even though it is tame by today's standards. Right. When I was 10, it was, it was horrendous. And the, you know, the big, the ending with Jason coming yeah. out, coming out on coming of, out the, of, the of the lake and stuff. Right. And it seems like to me, like, uh, yeah, it, it holds up because I rewatched it and there's something about it that holds up, whether it's just the fact that it's so simple and it's like there's a lot of they didn't have a lot of lights. So the movie has a lot of darkness to it where you mm. can't really see what's in front of you. And I think that's what makes it creepier, at least for the first two thirds. Um, once it's revealed who the killer is, it does get a little silly, but I still like it. You know, I still one of my favorite movies. But that first two thirds of that movie is really eerie and creepy. And if you've gone camping or been to camp, in any in any way um yeah because if you you think about it in comparison to halloween which obviously it was cashing in on right halloween is pretty clear from the get-go who's killing it's just whether or not it's the question is will you survive right whereas friday 13th is more of a traditional whodunit in a way isn't it it is and it it wasn't until recently i mean i've seen the movie so many times but it wasn't until recently that i realized that there's some red herrings that they try to throw in there and you don't think about that now because you're so used to knowing who the killer is. Mm. But then looking at it from a fresh standpoint, you're like, wait a minute, they were trying to make it look like this guy was the killer in a couple shots or this guy. Mm. Cause there's like the guy running the camp drives a Jeep. And then of course, Mrs. Voorhees also drives a Jeep. Yep. There we go. There's, there's the dog reminding us that five minutes have passed. Right. Just jumping forward uh, another year to 1981 to one of my my favorites and I think I think this is definitely one where I think because this was I was right on age for this whereas I was too right. young for Star Wars this is right. where I guess I get on the cinema bus I'm talking about yeah, right, right. Raiders of the Lost Ark Okay so for me again I saw this movie at a very young age and obviously the last scene in the movie where the Nazis faces melt mm. as a child screamed when that happened and I guess my mom she says, I had to like cover your eyes right when it happened. Um, but it's funny because like th- there are like when I was three years old, I made my mom act out scenes from that movie <laughs> with me because um, my mom stayed at home with me um, in through the 80s. And um, so I would make her act out scenes. It was funny. I would either act or make her act out scenes from Raiders or Jaws 3. I don't know why, but those were the two movies. And so, um, I don't know, for me, Raiders is a perfect movie. I don't like know what you would change. I know they've gone back now and 
kind of updated some of the effects in later releases. And I'm like, why? It's perfect. I mean, obviously, there's a part where the snake... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill you can see the reflective glass you know protecting mm. Harris Ford from the real snakes you can see a little bit of that that's like the only flaw in that movie so it's interesting because i think that movie is so perfectly paced and it's simple i think a lot of adventure movies over the years have tried to emulate even indiana jones 4 for that matter try to emulate what that movie did, but they made it too complicated. And I think if you watch that movie, you're like, this plot is very straightforward. It's simple. There's not a lot of like trying. It, it, it's very simple. And there's and again, like I think that's why that movie works so well, and why the later sequels, while I still love, don't quite recapture that. So I'll be interested in see, seeing what they do with Indiana Jones Five because they're hyping it as like kind of a back to the basics movie. Mm. Um, of course, it's funny because there's a lot of people who who talk about Raiders and they're like, oh, if you take Indiana Jones out of the story, the end result is exactly the same. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that. If, <laughs> if, if, if they get the arc and they open it up, they're still going to die, even if Indiana Jones doesn't do anything. So, but I, but for me, like what's impressive about that. Movie, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, from a screenwriting point of view, though, if you think, of it, although it's a simple story, yeah. the point being is, he knows the the provenance of the ark. Yeah. But does he believe it'll happen? That's Well, and, and they stumble upon its resting place because of him. So I guess I can say that that, that does alter the plot. But but um, also I think it I think the film turns him into a believer because you know before he finds it and it does what it does. Right. It's just right. a theory, you know. Yeah. You don't yeah. want it to come true obviously. Yeah, right. But but, but when it does come true, then it's a, it's it's one for the one for the uh, for the for the professor journals, isn't it? Well, and for me, like I don't know, like if if it's because we reached the Michael Bay action part of cinema in the in the mid to late nineties, <clears throat> the way action movies are filmed now is completely different. So, what I like about Raiders is that you like you can get a sense of where you are, right? Mm. Like. It, it, all the action sequences, you're like, I can see the trucks on the road. I understand where he is in relation to the trucks. A if you watch an action scene now, the way they film it, they just shoot with multiple cameras and hack it, hack it apart in, in post and try to make it work. And I think, you know, Spielberg storyboarded out every single sequence to the point where you can follow the action and understand where things are happening. And there's no CGI. Yes, there's matte paintings and stuff like that, but there's like real stunts <laughs> with people hanging underneath cars. Mm. And I feel like that's what makes that movie work is it's still to this day is that it's authentic. It's not like they're, they're not throwing in CGI, like in the Jones four, there's that chase through the jungle. And I remember when I saw it, that, that opening night, I was like, Oh great. This is starting. This looks real. They're actually going through the jungle. And then all of a sudden there's like a cut where you can tell everybody's on a green screen fighting. Right. <laughs> on top of the truck and you're like instantly pulled out of the, you're pulled out of it. You're like, I can't, I don't believe it anymore. Right. And 
so that's why I think Raiders still holds up as probably, you know, one of the best action movies ever and also a perfect movie because it's everything is everything was done on on location, you know? Um and so I think that, you know, maybe we'll be going back to that a little bit. I don't know. Like everybody is so scared of accidents on set now, which is mm. totally understandable. And I think that's why a lot of things are done with blue screen or green screen now. I, I must admit, I remember listening to Nicholas Wan and Reffin talk about Drive, where he forgoed right. a huge amount of the budget for the car crash sequence, car chase sequence to be real, as opposed right. to a studio car crash sequence. Sure. So he he, he actually forgot he, he let a lot of his budget go to have what yeah, yeah, what looks more real because there's no. Right. There's the dog. Sorry about that. I could talk about I could talk about that movie for another hour. <laughs> right then, jumping a bit further into the eighties, just tipping over into the second half, nineteen eighty six. John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. So I had to put a John Carpenter movie in there, um, just because, like, for me, I, I I think I told you I'm kind of a Spielberg slash John Carpenter uh, nut. Those are my two favorite directors, both very different. Um, Big Trouble in Little China for me, uh, there's a lot of reasons why this is one of my favorite movies, but it was interesting because I didn't see it till it premiered on HBO, which would probably have been 1987 ish. I think my mom watched it first and then she's like, Oh my God, you have to watch this movie. And then it just kind of became a movie that I would watch over and over again. And again, I have it completely, completely memorized. Uh, and I, I quote it all the time in front of my wife. And it's funny because funny story, my wife and I were not dating at the time. However, we were hanging out <laughs> um, and she had a, a different boyfriend at the time. <laughs> and and um, I'm like, I want you to watch this movie with me because every girl I dated up until that point hated that movie or couldn't get through it or they'd fall asleep. So I finally made my wife, my future wife, watch Big Trouble in Little China and she loved it. And then I got mad because I was like, that figures. We're not dating. She likes the movie. So I said, um, get out of my house. She was like, are you serious? I said, just get out of my house. And so <laughs> five minutes later, I call her up and tell her why I kicked her out. I was like, look, I'm frustrated because we've been hanging out for like a year. We're not dating. And you're the one person I've shown this movie to who actually got into it. So I'm like, this feels like it's torture for me. And so um, eventually, obviously, we, we started dating. But um, at our wedding rehearsal, in we ended up getting married in a cave in Missouri, which is there's like a cave that you can actually have weddings in. Okay. Um, during the <laughs> wedding, during the wedding rehearsal, I wore my Big Trouble in Little China shirt just kind of as a, you know, because that was kind of the movie that hmm. caused caused this all to happen. But um, yeah, you know, and this is one of those movies where I'm like, I'm glad they never made a sequel. I'm glad it's just, it is what it is. I hope they never make a sequel. And I also heard that they were planning on remaking it, which I'm like, please don't, please don't. I think that movie is one of those movies where it's like at the time, it might've been ahead of its time because it didn't do well when it came no, out. No, it didn't not at all, no. And that, and it's like, it wasn't until, it was weird because it wasn't until the nineties, they released it on VHS in like Walmart and it kept selling out. And people were like, what is it all of a sudden about this movie? That um, and I think it's kids like me who watched it on on HBO, and it kind of developed. And a lot of Carpenter movies do this, where it's like he's like ten years to fifteen years ahead of, you know, his movies. Like the thing is a prime example mm. of a movie bombed, and now it's like hailed as a classic, you know. Um, and they re-released it this year in in like you know, 
as like a, a special screenings and stuff. So I think his movies have kind of a weird delay where like years later, everybody's like, wait a minute, that's, that's great. That's a classic. Um, and I also think it's kind of a weird movie where it's like, it somehow it blends Chinese mythology with American sensibilities successfully. And it's not like too much of one or the other. So it feels kind of like it's this perfect uh, Kung Fu slash you know, fantasy movie with a lot of good American wisecracks. And, and uh, so I think it's one of those movies where it's like, I don't know how this worked, but it did <laughs> because it, <laughs> I think if they tried that movie again, it wouldn't work. I was going to say, if you try to pitch it, it doesn't, it doesn't land, does it initially? I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's like, if you were to pitch that to somebody, you'd be like, yeah, that's never going to work. And, somehow <laughs> it's, uh, and I, it's interesting because I, years later I read that it was supposed to be a Western and then they, they changed it. He was looking for his horse instead of his truck. You know, there was all these things that they ended up up making it set in present day. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, I, I, again, I think it's one of those movies that manages to still hold up. I listen to the soundtrack sometimes when I'm working and, um, and, and it just, it flows really well. I took my daughter to see it uh, when they had a local screening of it recently. And even she liked it and she was maybe five or something when I took her. And she's like, oh, wow, I really like that. And and so I was like, okay, good, good. It must be in the genes then, eh? You never know. Like, I'm scared to show her Raiders because I'm, I'm afraid she's going to go, Dad, this is boring. You know, or uh, E.T. is another one. I'm like, do I show her this movie? Because she's going to end up thinking this movie is really too slow, you know? or well, so uh, Just out of interest, going back to your point before about um, being ahead of his time, maybe. What is it about his direction that, that sort of, wrong foots the audience for you that, well that- if you i don't know i'm not really sure what it is it's kind of a weird thing where it's like it takes some time for the audience to catch on or the movies seem timeless like his movies do you never think about any of his movies go on finish as your being thought dated. as being dated like none of his movies seem dated like they seem like he caught a specific time period but if it's the music he doesn't rely on the music of the time and i think that some of his techno yeah, I, I was. I I, I, had a, I had a recent rewatch of The Fog, and I had exactly the same experience. Where I thought, this is just a, you know, an all time classic timeless. ghost story. You know, and yeah, you can't, yeah. you can't fault it. There's nothing. There's, exactly. you, could, you could literally lift that story and tell well, it again in 2010, 2020, and it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't need to alter. It was, it's just right. It shockingly, shockingly, my least favorite John Carpenter movie has suddenly gotten easier for me to watch and that's ghosts of mars i mean at the time i saw it i'm like this is horrendous and now every time it's on i start watching it and i get caught up in it and i'm still thinking this is horrendous but it's so enjoyable i don't know like and so so his movies i think just take 15 20 years to catch on and and um which is unfortunate for him because he wants to make money but yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they, keep, they keep remaking his movies so he's going to keep getting checks you know indeed well look moving on to your fifth and final choice okay we are we are gonna go for Robocop from nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> go on, tell me where how you how this reached you as an audience and, what, and who you watched it with and whatever. <sighs> well, it, again, this is one of those movies where they Robocop was a movie that they really uh marketed towards children, which was a horrible decision, but yet amazing. Because it's like it's one of the most hardcore R-rated movies of its time. Mm. It was it was it pushed, I mean, there's an X-rated version of it where I think the guy who gets shot in the office, Mr. Kenny, they like added another 30 seconds of him getting pummeled with bullets by, oh, by really? the, the Ed 209. Yeah. It just keeps going. And you're like, well, okay. 
So it's just one of those movies where everybody talked about it because, I mean, what kid at that time wouldn't be interested in a movie about a robot cop? Like, come on, like, that's like the perfect thing for a kid. And I have a very vivid memory of going to my hometown theater. I, I grew up in a small town in Nebraska where we had a movie theater with two screens and it was Robocop and Spaceballs. And I obviously was almost eight years old and I had to go see Spaceballs because I wasn't going to get to see Robocop. However, my buddy's dad went to see Robocop while we were in Spaceballs. And afterwards we got out of the theater. I'm just like asking him all these questions about it. I'm like, what happens in it? You know, so my fascination with that movie um, was almost immediate because like who wouldn't again, like it, it, they, it looks like it should be made for kids, but it's absolutely not. And it hasn't, it wasn't until I got into maybe high school that I realized that movie is actually a dark comedy. But, um, but it's funny because I had Robocop toys. They had a cartoon, they had a toy line in the U S or probably everywhere for that movie. And like the Robocop shot like a cap gun, you know, cap gun stuff. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, it's like, why would you market this to kids unless you wanted the kids to watch it? So I remember when RoboCop 2 came out, I begged and begged and begged. And finally, my dad took me to see it. So RoboCop 2 was my first R-rated movie in the theater. Um, oh, wow. And RoboCop 2 isn't as, is nowhere near as good as the first movie. However, it's better than RoboCop 3. Let's, so, um, and I've grown to appreciate RoboCop 2 just because there's so many crazy, zany things in there. And I'm like, I don't know how they got away with that. Um, and RoboCop is a movie where you, I don't know if they could make that movie today. Um, in what remake, way? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of like, it's not PC <laughs> in many ways. It's super graphic. Um, and then when they did the remake, uh, was it that like eight or nine years ago when they did yeah. the remake? It was a while ago. Um, it was PG-13. So I knew that, that right away. I'm like, this isn't going to be as good because it needs to be. Well, I seem to, I seem to remember Kim, Newman's, Kim Newman reviewed it at the time and said about the, the, the RoboCop remake. And he said, of course, audiences in 1987 were thinking, I wish we had more backstory on the RoboCop before he became a RoboCop. Right. <laughs> like, right. You didn't. There's, yeah. Cinema language is enough for you to understand that he's lost his yeah, life. It's, it's got the right amount of of backstory the villains are interesting i think that was my big problem with um the remake was i was like i don't remember anything about the villains i know michael keaton was a villain in it but i don't remember any i don't remember anything that happened in that movie so i'm like okay ronnie cox like iconic movie villain um kurtwood smith is great in that movie every villain even like the fact that like each villain in that group of bad guys is memorable because they each have a very individual look to them you know that mm. whether it be, whether it be wardrobe or whatever they gave each character kind i mean of kurtwood smith comes up in the tv series patriot and he plays a and he's such a different personality compared to the obviously in my mind he's in robocop and then he plays right. this kind of mealy mouth kind of corporate kind of desk you know well right my my wife watched that 70s show right, and right. so she had not seen She's not seen RoboCop until I showed it to her. Um, and she's like, wait, isn't that the guy? Isn't that the dad from that 70s show? I'm like, yeah, you know, he's a total, he's a total prick in this movie, you know? <laughs> but and that's like, I I see him as that guy versus, you know, um that 70s show. And I remember when that 70s show was on the air, I'm like, why is why is Kurtwood Smith on this show? This is so strange. 
Um, it just goes to show you how good of an actor he is. Um, and it's funny because Ronnie Cox, I, I, you know, he basically plays the same villain in Total Recall, which were both Paul Verhoeven movies. Yeah. And Total Recall was close to being on my list of my top five. Um, Total Recall is my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie by far. Um, and that was another movie where I think Paul Verhoeven, I don't give him enough credit for altering my childhood because that was kind of the transition for me into R-rated, R-rated movies. Well, and to be honest with you, he's he's one of the few filmmakers that unapologetically will make one. There's a there's yeah. a there's a lot of film. I think that might be you know, and and I say this as a Brit who's in Europe, but there is a there yeah. is a continental European that's different. We have more morally speaking when it comes to art. Sure. Yeah, we're closer to America, it would seem, than yeah. than than the continent in a lot of senses. You know, a European sure. movie is a European movie to us, just as it is to you. Um, sure. You know, as opposed to a UK movie, and that's not, and I don't think that's about. I, I hope it's not. I, dev, I never think of it as a supremacy thing. It's just that I think the sensibilities. It's almost like the, on the continent, they'll just be that bit. They're just that much more risque, and I'm very envious of that part of their filmmaking. Right. And I think Ver- Verhoeven brought that to Hollywood, didn't he? Yeah, and he and he did it successfully. And I think that's one of those things where, like Starship Troopers, years later, was ahead of its time. And I remember I saw that in high school at the theater, and we were all like, "Holy!" Sh- Holy crap, you know, and uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, I haven't seen his new film, um, Benedetta. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I would love for him to come back and do one last R-rated sci-fi movie. That would be I, what one last great R-rated sci-fi movie to close out his, you know, his career. So, um, but yeah, his movies definitely influenced me. And, and it's funny because even now he's, oddly enough, people still, people are praising him for Showgirls. And at the time that movie was a total flop. And it's like we're still talking about that movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's. I mean, I, I must admit, it's it's a ridiculous film, but you know, it's yeah. it's it, you know, for better or for worse, it has had a cultural impact, and I don't think it's a cultural impact for the worse either. It, you know, it's kind of it, it it became a fun thing, and sometimes entertainment can just be fun. It doesn't have to be all hang together right. in a way. Yeah, that, exactly. I think that even when he had a misfire, I like Hollow Man. A lot of people you know, hated that movie. And I actually really liked it. Um, so I don't know, like I, for me, um, again, like Total Recall, I really, it was close to putting it on the list. Predator or Total Recall? They were like the runner-ups on my, <laughs> on my list of five. Well, look, let's remind people then what your five were. We had Star Wars and I'm, and I, I when, when I got your list, I was like, and I'm not going to say New Hope at all. It is Star Wars when it- it's, it's a general thing. Yeah. Cause I literally could not narrow it down. So, but also, give you give me the title Star Wars as opposed to Star Wars: A New Hope. I mean, right, it right. never was a New Hope; it was just Star Wars, and and the yeah, you know right. retrofitting a title is more criminal exactly. than retrofitting the effects to me. Um, yeah. Friday the Thirteenth, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Big Trouble in Little China, and RoboCop. And we also got to hear Patrick talk about his new film. They wait in the dark, and there'll be links in the show notes as to how and where you can see that movie. And it just right. gives me to say, Patrick. Thank you very much for giving your time on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Have me back anytime. I'll give you a different five.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 